Well, Matthew chapter 28, if you have your copy of scripture, I'd invite you to turn there this morning. And we are looking actually at Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 62, and we're going to read down to chapter 28, verse 15, Matthew 27, 62, to Matthew 28, 15. The Lord Jesus has been crucified. His body has been taken down from the cross. It has been entrusted to Joseph of Arimathea and to Nicodemus. Uh, They have taken the body of the Savior and they have put it in that tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea in which no man had ever lain. Uh, The women had prepared the spices and the anointing oils to keep his body from decaying which, as many of you know, was a uh, fulfillment of what is spoken in Psalm 16, that God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. And, and here at the beginning of our passage, the body of the Lord Jesus is resting from the work of redemption on the Old Covenant Sabbath, resting dead in the grave, having cried out, it is finished. And now his body is put there away from the prying eyes of men. And now Matthew records for us these words. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you, say that he departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews. To this day, the grass withers The flower fades, but the word of God 
endures forever. Well, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. There have been many books that have been written trying to um, undercut the biblical account of the literal bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And even at the very time when Jesus has accomplished redemption and his body has been placed in the tomb, there was, there was great hatred and turmoil. There was hatred of the religious leaders in Israel, even for a deceased Jesus. And I was thinking this week, what a simple thought it is. If the enemies of Christ wanted to kill off Christianity, all they had to do was produce the body of Jesus. The Christianity they hated so much, if they wanted to kill it off, all they had to do was produce the body. And they couldn't do it because Christ was risen. A number of years ago, Dan Brown, don't read anything by Dan Brown, but a number of years ago, Dan Brown claimed to have found the tomb of the body of Jesus. And I thought, wow, that's marvelous. The scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the rulers in Israel, they couldn't find the body of Jesus, but Dan Brown could find it. If you want to kill Christianity, produce the lifeless body of Jesus. Well, this account is in many uh, respects, it is engaging with this idea, the world's hatred intersecting with the love of the disciples, the women at the tomb, all of these things converging, all of these different figures coming together. And Matthew gives us a very unique account. Matthew gives us an account that is different than the other gospel writers because all of the gospel writers are giving us different sides, different perspectives of what happened really and truly in time and space. They're giving us their personal reflections on either what they witnessed or what they learned from those who had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. What I want us to see this morning as we look at this passage together, I want us to see three things. First, I want us to consider the inevitability of Jesus' resurrection. Secondly, I want us to consider the credibility of Jesus' resurrection. And then I want us to consider the applicability of Jesus' resurrection. The inevitability, the credibility, and the applicability. We'll notice that uh, they are at the uh, time in which the um, chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a pilot. They come to, to a ruler that they didn't respect with a request that was burning within them because of their hatred for Christ. And they, they come to Pilate and they say, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Now what's interesting about this is that even those that hated Jesus heard the claims that he made during his earthly ministry. Even those who couldn't understand what Christ taught with spiritual eyes, nevertheless heard what he said and held on to so much of what he said. Now, it's very interesting. They note here that Jesus had predicted his resurrection. They had heard him in public settings saying things like, I'll be crucified and after three days I'll rise. And that was something that Matthew had highlighted in this book back at Caesarea Philippi, back in chapter 16, when Peter makes that great confession of faith, when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And, and, and Peter said, well, uh, the disciples said, well, some say Moses, or some say Elijah, some, some say uh, John the Baptist, one of the old prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say? And Simon very quickly says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus pronounces that blessing on him. And then, in, in chapter 16, verse 21, 
Matthew says that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This was a turning point in Jesus' ministry. He was making clear the work that he had come to do, really in a, in a profoundly new way for his disciples. He, he was bringing them along to understand the very heart of why he had come into the world and what would happen to him. And then in chapter 17, one chapter later, verses 22 and 23, Jesus told his disciples, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Well, that is two times in the middle of this gospel that Jesus directly told his disciples exactly what was going to happen to him. And that ought not to surprise us because when we come to that post-resurrection account in Luke 24 and the risen Jesus appears to those two on the road to Emmaus and, and to the disciples later on and And he says to them, O foolish ones, slow in heart to believe all that the scriptures had had spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? What Jesus has essentially done there is he has said, everything about the Old Testament was pointing to his death and resurrection. The flood pointed to his death and resurrection. The waters destroying the filth of the earth. The waters abating the new creation appearing. Um, All of the prophecies in the prophets, judgment and restoration, pointed to his death and his resurrection. It was not just those explicit statements in which we would get those statements from the prophets that the Messiah would be restored and that his blessings would be spread over the earth. It's the totality of the Old Testament. Everywhere and every point attesting to the sufferings of Christ and to his resurrection glories. And so there is an inevitability to the resurrection of Jesus. It must happen. Nothing can stop it. Now, here's what's interesting. There's almost a comedic irony with what goes before the women at the tomb in chapter 28. And it's found here at the end of chapter 27. Notice, these, these, these chief priests and these Pharisees, they come to Pilate. They make this claim. They want Pilate to do something. They tell him what to do in verse 64, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. So they, they are insistent that we've got to stop what has been set in motion and is outside of our control. And Pilate probably disdainingly says to them, you have a guard of soldiers, you go, you go make it secure as you can. Now, what I love about this is they go to the fullest degree possible to ensure that the body of Jesus stays in that tomb. They roll a huge stone over the tomb. They have some kind of seal, whether it's Pilate's or whether it's the Sanhedrin seal, that would mark it off that if anyone touches this, this stone, that they should, be, they should be the objects of the severest repercussions. And then they put guards in front of it. Um, I almost chuckled as a new Christian the first time I read that and Pilate saying, go, make it as secure as you can. I mean, you you could bring all the military forces of all the nations, of all the world, and put them right outside of the tomb of Jesus and he's still coming out. He is still coming out. Men can try their best to eliminate the Lord Jesus because of their hatred for him, 
But God, in his eternal purposes, decided that his son, who accomplished redemption on the cross, would rise from the dead on the third day. Now, there's not just this inevitability, there is the issue of credibility. And so much of this passage is really focused on credibility. How do we know that Jesus was really raised from the dead? How can we be sure that these are credible attestations? Well, I think one thing, very simply, that that many overlook is the world's hatred to him even when he's dead. They hate him so much that even though he is dead and buried in a tomb, they still want to try to snuff him out. That in itself proves the truth of Christianity. Jesus would say in John chapter 15, don't be surprised if the world hates you because it hated me before it hated you. That is actually one of the evidences of Christianity. The world's hatred for Christ and by implication his people is is part of that witness to the credibility of Jesus' claims and the teaching of scripture. And it's interesting, even the ways in which they remembered the things that he said. One old Presbyterian preacher who led part of uh, the Great Awakening, Asahel Nettleden, said this, the enemies of religion will be sure to remember and tell everything which they think will work injury to the cause of Christ. Jesus said, if they kept my word, they'll keep your word. There is, even in their animosity and hostility and attestation of the truthfulness of the claims of the Redeemer. Well, there is also this sweet picture of the angel appearing to the women. And on that first day of the week at dawn, these women have come to the tomb. And Mary Magdalene is named, and Mary. And they've come to the tomb, and they, they haven't found the stone. They found an angel who has rolled away that stone. And they're interacting with this created being, this messenger that God has sent. By the way, angels play this hugely significant role, whether it is the angel announcing the birth of Jesus to Mary, or whether it is the angel strengthening him through his ministry at those various important messianic epochs, or or here at the end of the gospel. And you'll remember Jesus had said that just as Jacob had that dream in the ladder to heaven and he saw angels ascending and descending, that, that he said, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And here at the tomb, one of those created heavenly spirit beings meets the women. And the angel of the Lord rolled the stone away and sat on it. It is often been remarked that the angel didn't roll the stone away to let Jesus out, but to let the disciples in. The angel is there to verify the the credibility of what the disciples should have known based on what Jesus taught them, but weren't yet believing. You see, they needed to be convinced in their weakness, in their frailty. Jesus is going to deal with the disciples in their weakness and unbelief, in their frailty, just after this. But, but as these women are there and the angel is there and, and the stone is, uh, is rolled away and, and we're told there was a great earthquake and, and for fear of him, notice verse 4, for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Um, this is awesome. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified He is not here. He has risen. As he said, come see the place where his body lay. 
Look for yourself. You'll remember that James and John will run and they'll race each other to the tomb and they'll stoop down and they'll look in. And in John's account, they'll see the grave clothes folded. And you all know that, that, that grave robbers don't fold clothes. They don't take the time to put them neatly where the head and the body was. And, and they see the evidences. They see the truthfulness that Christ has risen, that Christ has burst the gates of hell, that Christ has come out victorious, that Christ has let himself out. You know, Jesus coming out of the tomb is much like Samson defeating his enemies. Samson was a type of Christ who, in his death, destroyed his enemies. Jesus comes out of the tomb and the guards become like dead men. The earth quakes, graves are opened. Christ is risen. He's the first fruits. He has come conquering and to conquer. And I love the way the angel welcomes these women and come see where he lay. You know, a lot of people don't understand this. Christianity is a religion of open disclosure. There's nothing covert, there's nothing hidden. We don't do things in secret. We proclaim what God's word says. Everything is open. Everything is set out. And God says to you this morning, wherever you are spiritually, come and see the place where his body lay. He wants us to welcome men and women to investigate everything that scripture states. Um, We don't want people to just blindly receive things because we say so. You'll remember how the Bible and and how the Holy Spirit, uh, how he commends those uh, in Berea because they received the word from the, the great apostle Paul. They heard about the resurrection of Christ. They heard all these great things. And then they went and they searched the scriptures. And the Holy Spirit says they were more fair minded than others because they received the word with all readiness and they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Come and see. Investigate for yourself what, what scripture says. The angel invites the women to see and to understand the credibility of the physical bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, that credibility is going to be questioned again in verses 11 through 15, and many of the religious leaders in Israel are going to scramble to try to come up with a story, but the reality is it would have been impossible for the disciples to go up against Roman guards. It would have been impossible for them to roll away the stone. It would have been impossible for them to take the the deceased body of the Savior to carry it somewhere and not to be stopped. It would have been an absolute impossibility. These were the ones that had secured it and made it as secure as they could. And now they can't stand the fact that he's risen. And and they're scrambling to come up with some other explanation. But what they can't do is produce the body of Jesus. They could kill Christianity if they could produce the body of Jesus. Now, the historical settings are so instructive, the inevitability of Jesus' return, the credibility of his resurrection, but really, most significantly, is the applicability of Jesus' resurrection. What difference does it make? What, what did it mean theologically? What was happening on that first day? And you've got to listen very carefully what was happening on that first day. Notice chapter 28, verse 1, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. It's not just coincidental that Jesus rose on the first day of the week. Jesus rose to usher in a new creation. 
He came to bring a new dawn, a new day. He came to bring a new world of grace. He transformed the rest of human history by his resurrection on the first day. And he transformed the old covenant Sabbath so that on the first day of every week, as he appeared to his disciples after this, on those various post-resurrection appearances, he was establishing a new day of worship in which we joined together to worship the Lord Jesus. Glorious, raised, ascended, exalted, and coming again. While I love Easter, I would be remiss not to tell you this. Every Lord's Day is Resurrection Sunday. And that's why it's so vital that we come and see the place where he lay on a weekly basis, as it were, under the ministry of the word. Uh, Eric Alexander has summarized it just so simply. It was not just the dawn of a new day. It was the dawn of a new age. It was the dawn of new life. Jesus secures new life for his people. If we are ever going to be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, it's only going to happen through the resurrected Christ, raising us up with him. I love when the Apostle Paul tries to explain what happened to believers when we're raised with him in our Christian experience by union with him. He kind of makes words up. He puts words together to try to explain what happens. We've been raised with him. We've been, we've been seated in the heavenly places with him. We're no longer dead in sins and trespasses. We've been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life because he stepped out of that tomb. Um, this is the only way Christianity works. If, you, if, if you're here today and you're saying, can it work for me? This is how it works. And yes, it can work for you. It worked for me many, many decades ago. It can work for you. And I want you to understand that this is a marvelous picture of the triumphant captain of our salvation coming out of that tomb. This is, this is the head of a new humanity. This is the last Adam coming out as the representative of all those he bled and died for. All those that he said to, whoever comes to me, I will never cast you out. All those to whom he said and who believe in him, whoever comes to me, I will raise him up on the last day. And that Christ is the captain of our salvation. Listen to this. This is amazing. Jonathan Edwards. Don't listen to anybody that hates Jonathan Edwards. He wasn't right about everything, but he was great. Jonathan Edwards says, Christ arose as the head of believers to deliver them from a state of death, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. He, as their head and captain of salvation, broke the prison set the doors wide open, broke the seal, rolled away the stone, laid the keepers dead, left the sepulcher open that all the dead that he has redeemed may come forth. I posted that today. Somebody said, that'll preach. I said, I know I'm going to preach it. <laughs> he came out. He opened the gates. He, he opened the graves. He burst the gates of hell. The stone and the seal and the guards, as Wesley said, are all vain. Vain the stone, the watch, the seals. Christ has burst the gates of hell. I don't know if you've ever thought about this so simply, but when Jesus dies on the cross, he dies to, um, to atone for our sins, to, to conquer our sins. When he rises, he conquers death. He conquers our sins on the cross, he conquers death stepping out of the grave, and he leaves our sins behind in the grave. 
you go to Church Creek, you've heard me tell you I love that picture in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where Christian finally makes it to the cross and, and that great burden of sin on his back finally falls off and it rolls down the, the hill and it rolls into the tomb. And that's a picture when Christ stepped out, he left our sins buried there in the tomb. Uh, listen to this, Gerhardus Voss said, when Christ rose on Easter morning, he left behind him in the depths of the grave every one of our sins. There they remain buried from the sight of God so completely that even in the day of judgment, they will not be able to rise up against us anymore. That's amazing. That's the applicability of the resurrection of Jesus. He burst the gates of hell. He conquered death. He left our sins atoned for, buried from the presence of God in the empty tomb. That empty tomb, by the way, has become, in a real respect, the very symbol of Christianity and everything on which Christianity hinges. Now, there is also the applicability of Jesus' resurrection in his disposition and approach to his disciples. Remember, all the disciples were, were in a bad place spiritually. The, the, the 11 had forsaken him and fled. John had stayed for a time. They were in hiding. The women were mourning. The women were getting spices ready. They were preparing their spices so that they could preserve the body of the Lord Jesus and anoint him. And, and no one is thinking that he's risen. None of the disciples believe that he was risen. Their hopes have been dashed. Those two on the road to Emmaus said to him, not recognizing the risen Jesus, we thought it was Jesus of Nazareth who would have been the Savior. And, and Jesus comes to restore them. And he restores them through his resurrection appearance. Notice, no sooner have the women received this word from the angels, no sooner have they responded in, in faith and obedience and, and go to see the place where he lay. And, and Mary goes to tell the disciples and the women go on toward Galilee that they are met by Jesus. Notice in verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. Now this is a mixture I'm not going to read you what John Calvin says, but he's a little bit harsher than I would be. And, and he does note that this fear is not a godly fear. This is not that reverence we owe God. This is an unbelieving fear. This is an uncertainty, an unmooring of themselves. This is, this is not them walking in faith, but they've received the news, and there's a mixture of faith and unbelief. And that is so often true in our hearts. Um, I, I feel like the man at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration, his little boy is convulsing and the disciples can't heal him. And he says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. These women are essentially saying that as they go, we believe, but, but their hearts were not at a place where they were settled in faith the way in which Christ wanted them to be. And so notice, no sooner have they left and obeyed that Jesus met them and said, greetings, and they come up and they fall down and they take that place and position, that posture of, of lowest uh, worship and adoration. They grab his feet, those pierced feet, those feet that had just been nailed to the tree for them. They grab those feet and they worship him. And let me tell you this this morning, if you've never noticed this, Jesus receives their worship, which would have been idolatry if he were not God and God in the highest sense of that term. 
He receives their worship. He doesn't let them cling to him. He tells them what to do, but his disposition of his heart goes out to them. You know, if, if the resurrection appearances of Jesus teach us anything with regard to his disposition to his people, it's that he cares immensely about revealing himself to people who are in low stations in life. Isn't that wonderful? He doesn't come to the high and mighty. He doesn't come to those who are strong in faith first. He comes to those that are weak. He comes to those who are trembling. He comes to those who are anxious, anxious about their souls, anxious about what's going to happen. And and his disposition is such that Christ comes to, to the weak and downcast disciples. You know, Christ is going to here commission these women after selling their hearts and telling them not to be afraid. And he's going to give them the work of carrying the good news to the disciples. It's a bit of a rebuke to the disciples. It's a bit of an honor for these women who were not highly esteemed in that society. And yet Jesus is accomplishing this purpose of, of reconciling all his people for whom he died to himself as the risen Christ. You know, Christ's appearance to the women, his commissioning them to tell the disciples what had happened, his instruction about where he would meet them, teaches us that Jesus felt a solidarity with all those he came to redeem. Isn't that marvelous? The risen Christ, if you believe in him, knows everything about you, and the disposition of his heart goes out to you. He knows when we're fearful, he knows when we're unbelieving, he knows when we're doubting, he knows when we're weak, he knows when we're overcome with sin, he knows when our minds are going in a thousand directions, he knew when Martha was anxious and worried and troubled, and the risen Jesus still comes to his people, and he still appears to us, not physically, but through the preaching of the gospel, in the ministry of the table, and he still says, greetings, Peace be to you. Do not be afraid. That's marvelous. Because many people have hard thoughts of Christ. Because on Judgment Day, Jesus is going to say to many, Depart from me, I never knew you, workers of iniquity. But to his people, his disposition is such that he draws them back to himself. He dispels the fear of the women. He produces joy in their hearts where they had had sorrow. Remember, Jesus had said this to the disciples in John's gospel as he's getting close to the cross. He says, he, he said, you're going to have sorrow, but it's only going to last momentarily, and then you're going to have joy. It's like a woman who, who is pregnant, and then the, the travail and the pain of giving birth, but then there's joy. And, and he's speaking about what his death and resurrection are going to do. They're in that state of sorrow, but, but he brings them to this place of joy. You know... That only happens when we understand the connection between the resurrection of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. What the empty tomb tells us is that sin's penalty was paid. What the empty tomb tells us is that Christ drank the bitter cup of death and judgment and wrath that you deserve, that you deserve and I deserve. And he drank it to the full. And God accepted the sacrifice of the eternal son. And he gave proof to it by raising him from the dead. My favorite benediction 
is in Hebrews chapter 13, 20 and 21. If you go here, you know I, I pronounce that often. One of the really interesting things about that benediction is that the writer of Hebrews seems to be saying that Christ was raised through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Remember as a young Christian thinking, what does that even mean? This is what it means. God the Father saw the blood. The blood was sufficient to pay for all the sins of all those for whom he died. The Father's justice was satisfied. His law was upheld. His wrath was propitiated. The Son accomplished and secured everything. And the writer of Hebrews says, God the Father responded to the sacrifice of the Son by raising him from the dead. I don't know who came up with this. I like to think me, but it's probably not me because I've heard various forms of this. But the resurrection of the Lord Jesus on the third day was God the Father's amen to the Son's cry, it is finished. It is the Father saying, let it be, it is finished. And now all there is, is come and see. Come and see. Come and see. Now, I don't know where you are today. I venture in a, in a uh, congregation our size, there are people here who have not been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. And that will only happen if you come to the risen Jesus. If you trust in him, if you acknowledge that your sin deserves the judgment that he took on the cross, that he atoned fully for the sins of his people, that he has a secured resurrection life, that he is the resurrection and the life. You know, the glorious thing about Jesus is he's done everything, and all he wants you to do is come to him. And he wants you to come with all your sin, all your burden, even that hostility you've had toward him, like those religious leaders. And he wants you to come and he wants to say, let me tell you the good news. Vein the stone, the watch, the seal. I have burst the gates of hell. And I have done that so that you can have life and that you can have life more abundantly and that you can have life everlastingly. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you this morning for that renewed reminder that you have raised your son from the dead. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have raised yourself from the dead, that you had authority to lay down your life and you had authority to take it again, and that you have done that. We thank you that you have shown yourself to be risen by many infallible proofs. We thank you for that great company, those 500 that saw you raised. We thank you, though, for the scriptures that are so clear and everything that you have taught and the, the very clear predictions that you would suffer and that you would rise from the dead, even in the Old Testament. We do pray, our God, that where there is unbelief, you would give faith. Where there is fear, you would settle our hearts and give peace. Would you give us joy and peace in believing? And we pray, our God, if there are any here who have never come to know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, would you do this because of what your son has accomplished? We pray these things in Jesus' name.